This is Radio Bath. So today on the story to tell, we have leadership expert and cricket enthusiast Richard Greaterex to chat to us about the way leadership has a role in cricket and how the England cricket team has changed over the last few years. Now, Richard, good morning, by the way. Good morning, Richard. And how are you? It's Richard to Richard, isn't it? Yes. Strangely, only just realised that. uh, Now, do you go by Richard, Rich, Richie? What? Richard. Richard. So you prefer Richard? Yes. Okay. Because I have one person in my RAF days, and no doubt will go down military routes at some point. Yeah. That he's the only person in the world that calls me Richie and he's the only one to get away with it does anybody call you Richie no no there's a story about that but oh, not, not for radio oh, not for radio okay <laughs> now I have on my some of my old t-shirts as well um, the shortened name of Richard of course is Dick which is Absolutely. quite quite known and we used to have a sergeant in our area and he was quite a large person so he was called Big Dick so guess what I was called Little Dick. Little Dick. Yeah. Well, that goes along the lines of my story as well. Does it? Yes. Fair enough. Now, I'm going to read out a little bit about your LinkedIn description. Okay. I know. So so whenever I interview anybody, I always research, stroke, stalk them. Okay. So are you ready for this? Yep. Recognised as a natural leader with a proven track record, leading, inspiring, motivating and supporting individuals and teams in business, sport and the military. Did you write that yourself or did that been written by somebody else? I probably used AI, I think. Did you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm dyslexic, so um, yeah, probably had somebody else uh, write it for me. Fabulous. Now, tell us about yourself. What do you do and how did you get to where you got to? Um, Yeah, I've had quite a varied career, really. Um, I left school at 18, having failed my A-levels, played a little bit of cricket for Somerset, second team and under 25, trialled. Was never good enough um, and worked for my father's business in the gaming machine industry. Uh, and then I wanted to travel, so I went off to New Zealand with my cricket kit, played in Auckland for a team called Cornwall Park, okay. and uh, came back and thought, what am I going to do now? So a good friend of mine had been to Sandhurst. He sort of has said to me, well, why don't you consider joining the, the army? Uh, you'll be allowed, allowed to play lots more cricket in, in the army. And... Uh, you know, you'll gain some leadership experience as well. So I went to the recruitment office in Trowbridge, told them I was interested in joining, and probably about a year later I found myself uh, studying the Royal Military Academy uh, course at Sandhurst. So, uh, Amazing. Yeah. So your genuine reason for joining the military wasn't to defend the country, but was to play cricket more. Uh, it was to gain <laughs> some leadership experience, broaden my, my knowledge and... and uh, yeah, just broadened my, my life experience, really. And part of that was was playing cricket, yeah. Now, I had a very similar thing. So I, I'm ex-REF and yeah. will no doubt talk military we stuff. We won't hold that against for. you, obviously. Obviously not. And I genuinely joined the REF because um, the job that I had was running out. And I went to the job centre and there was a load of jobs that were there. Yeah. And that's the reason why I joined the military. And similar to yourself, it isn't necessarily a calling or anything. It just happens to be the next bit that you do. No, so I didn't, you know, I... I I had a bit of a years living overseas on my own experience, so you know it's all about really gaining life experiences. And my father, um, my parents actually sat me down and told me that they were going to sell the business that they were running. And did I want to continue or did I want to do something else? And at that point, it was a, seemed like a natural break to then go travelling. So that's what I did. And as I said, I came back and didn't really know what to do at that point. Yeah. And how old were you at this point? Uh, I think I was. 22, and by the time I joined, I was 23. Okay. Good age to join the military, because lots of people join at the age of 17 and yeah. generally don't know anything at all. Uh, I was 21 when I joined, yeah. and I felt like I was quite mature at that point compared to everybody else. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about that? Well, I, I didn't have any military experience at all, so so it's sort of very naive, very green in terms of, of the military and what was expected of of me. Obviously, I had some life experiences that I could draw on. But, uh, yeah, it was an interesting time, you know. Uh, sort of challenged me physically, obviously, and mentally. But physically wasn't the, the toughest thing because because I sort of played a lot of sport over the, over the sort of preceding years. So I was of rugby, cricket, squash, swimming, wow. you know, golf, any, anything really. I would always try and... That was the thing that got me through school, really, was... Yeah. was because I wasn't an academic, I, I tried to excel in something else and I found sport was my thing. 
I always remember when I was going through my basic training in the RAF, the senior service, um, I always remember that uh, I jumped on the digital scales and it's the only time in my entire life that I saw a 0.5 at the end. And that was because it was nine stone, 13.5. Yeah. Outside of that, I've never been under 10 stone my entire life. I think I started at Sandhurst 13 stone and after the first five weeks, I was 11. Yeah. Yeah. And, And, you know... Going back to what was it like, I remember the first five weeks where they're teaching you to march Mm. and I just couldn't, you know, even though I was a sportsman, I just could not march in time or couldn't get my feet right. I was what they call in the military TikToking. So my my right arm was moving with my right leg and I was just terrible. And I want... On one day on the parade square, the sergeant major was literally bawling me out nose to nose about how bad my coordination was. So you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't play through that you're a natural sportsman. You can actually co- coordinate your arms and <laughs> your legs in, a, in an orderly fashion. So going on to cricket then, very quickly. Yeah. Um, what are you, batsman, bowler, all rounder? I'm a left-handed opening batsman. Left-hand so bowling at all? Uh, I used to bowl a little bit, but. Definitely not now. Definitely not now. No, no the body. I, I bowled recently, and my right arm and just underneath here, yeah. um, my right shoulder blade was hurting for about a week. Yeah. Um, I bowled. The last time I bowled in a game was about six years ago, and it bounced three times and hit the stumps. So, and at that point, I decided that no, this isn't for me anymore. So. Now, you're local to here as well, aren't you, in regards to the Wiltshire area? Did yep. you grow up in Trowbridge, I believe? Um, we moved from sort of Surrey area when I was 11 to Trowbridge. Grew up, uh, played my first game for uh, Trowbridge second team at the age of 13. And yes, sort of moved away and have since come back. Amazing. So. And John of Gaunt, I believe you went to as I well. I did, yes. The yeah. I still play football there every week. Do you? Yeah, all my children went to John of Gaunt. It's changed a lot since I was there. They've actually got a fence around the school now. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that's to keep keep people out or keep the children in. But uh, yes, it doesn't look too great along Wingfield Road with the... And I reckon we have somebody we both know, and that is Mac. Mac Davison. There you go, yes. see? I knew well, you'd know him. Yeah, he was my favourite teacher. And he is still playing football. Is he? He's turned 70 now, and he's still playing. Yeah, he's still he, playing basketball. He's a super, super guy. Yeah. Uh, super fit. He did hit me with a blackboard rubber once for talking <laughs> in one of his classes, which you're obviously not allowed to do these days. But, no, uh, alas not. No. Alas but, not. Yeah, a really smashing blow. And I you know, got to know him a lot more after I left school by playing rugby at Trowbridge Rugby Club. Okay. And, uh, you know, played played with him in the same side. So, yeah, really nice guy. Yeah, and, and again, we're going to talk about leadership as we go forward. Um, he's one of those exceptional leaders that you would run through brick walls for. Yeah, yeah he was super guy, really inspired the kids, you know, really took the time to try and understand the, the children, you know, the guys yeah. I was with. So Yeah, no, he's, uh, he's fabulous. Now... Just on a really blokey thing here, okay, again, whenever I research somebody, I have to look at a variety of different places, looked at LinkedIn, looked at Facebook, and a variety of different places that you are. I'm going to talk about your photo quickly, okay? So this is the photo that's going to be released for when we do this interview as well, so people can see this photo. And I want to know, was it based on the Mona Lisa? And the reason which, I asked which that, photo is it? This is the one which has kind of got a black background with your glasses okay. on. Okay, so that photo there. So there okay. is a story behind Please that tell photo. Us. So I think it was probably about four or five, um, six years ago. Uh, I was running a conference for a company that I was working for. And I think the year before I'd been to the Adele um, uh, concert. And right at the start of the concert, there's a picture of her, black and white, and you can just see her eyelids flickering. Yeah. Okay. And then I think, I can't remember, but I think, is there a song that starts Hello? Yeah, yeah, called Hello. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's why it would be called. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, as you can see her eye, eyelids flickering and then you see her and then they close and then it opens again and she says hello and that's the start of the conference. Okay. And so that's what we did for the, <laughs> we tried to do for the conference ah. in, and I sort of was the compare of the conference. So... I had the photographer who we hired to just take a headshot for I was going to say, it's a very professional photograph. Yes. But it's it's kind of, if you look back at it, and you may not have noticed this, I can't quite tell if you're smiling or not smiling, and it is the Mona Lisa for men. Yeah, we were trying to be a bit sort of creative. Arty. <laughs> yes. Arty <laughs> as well. marketing, you know. That's, that's all Just good. a natural. <laughs> and where do you currently work? I uh, work in uh, Holt, work with my, my partner, who's on the radio, I think, two weeks ago. 
talk, talking to you, the lovely Rachel McGill. Um, yes, we've got a, an office in, in the glove factory in Holt and, uh, and we base ourselves there doing leadership development. Fabulous. Well, we're going to have a little break for music. When we come back, we're going to talk about a subject which is dear to both of our hearts, and that's cricket. Yes. So if you don't like cricket, you might as well switch off now. (laughs) But I promise, don't switch off. We're going to talk about leadership and cricket. So uh, right back after this. This is Radio Bath. Radio Bath. Okay, so we're back with Richard Greater X get the name right it's almost as strange a surname as mine so my surname is Beauvoisin which is a French surname where does Greater X come from I think it's Anglo-Saxon there are a lot of people in the Derbyshire area with that name from what I understand my great-great-grandfather played cricket for Derbyshire in 1905 Right. What I was told, but it's Anglo-Saxon okay I've never heard of a Greater X before Uh, and I just tell everybody it means oh great king and what does it actually mean I haven't a clue you haven't a clue no (laughs) Now, you, but it sounds good. It's plausible. Now, you play cricket to a reasonable level. So you said su- Somerset seconds? Yeah, I, I aspired to be a county cricketer as a youngster. Um, was fortunate enough to have some trials at Somerset. Played a few games in the second team. Played a few games in the under-25s and then realised I probably wasn't quite good enough. And how did you feel about that when you kind of have that, that moment of going, do you know what, I don't have what it takes? I think you just know. Mm. You know, I, you look at the, I looked at the, the others around me. Um, I, I trialled for West of England schools, didn't quite make the uh, and pre- uh, go on from there. So you know you get to, you get a feel for where where you are and who you're competing against, and that's really you know I was fortunate enough then to go off to New Zealand and play played in the Premier League in in New Zealand with. Uh, with and against New Zealand cricketers. Okay, did did okay, but didn't really you know achieve what I would probably have hoped to have achieved and then came back and then as I said to you before I joined the army and that seemed like a great opportunity there to play cricket to play cricket (laughs) yeah and you know my time at Sandhurst as was was amazing physically I was the fittest I've ever been Mm. and then of course my final term which is where they they sort of polish you a bit and teach you how to be an officer um was the cricket season so we used to knock off early on a Saturday and and go and play cricket and actually that, that's when I started to excel because I was super fit my skills were honed over a, quite a long period of time sort of played for Wiltshire under 15, 16, 17s, 19s, 25s and uh, so technically I was I was reasonable yeah. and of course being super fit you don't feel the fatigue when you're out batting so yeah. you know I, I really excelled there and that's when I sort of sort of found my 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 level really I got selected to go on a uh, combined services cricket tour to Australia shortly after I left Sandhurst. Amazing. And then the following summer played, played. in fact, that summer, the summer I left Sandhurst on the Friday, I played in the inter-services on the Monday okay. down at Portsmouth against the Navy. And in my first game, I was fortunate enough, lucky enough, I think, to get 110. So Amazing. That's what got me into the tour to Australia. And so. then you carry on from there, and don't it, you? Yeah, and it snowballed from there, really. And, of course, you meet lots of different people on, on your journey. And I've been fortunate enough to play cricket all over the world through MCC membership and army tours, combined services tours. And, uh, yeah, it's fantastic. I've met lots and lots of people and still involved today sort of administratively as well. So Okay. So how are you involved at the moment then? So um, about... 25 years ago, I was introduced to St Paul Getty's cricket at Wormsley, okay. which if you go onto their website, wormsley.com, you'll see is one of the most beautiful cricket grounds in the world. The groundsman asked me if I would help him sort of put together a database of players of a good standard or varying standard. And we play about six to 10 games a year, some women's games as well now. And I sort of administer the players, so sort their sides out and make sure we've got good sides to play against a varying degree of opposition that come along from yeah. right across the world. So we play really old traditional sides like Eton Ramblers, a team called the Arabs, a team called Isingari, and uh, and then we play touring sides, especially this summer. We've played a number from Australia, obviously come over for the Ashes. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great experience. And I also run a, a veterans cricket, we call it the Legends Day, Okay. So ex-servicemen who've played for the services, um, bringing them back together to create that sort of support network for veterans. 
you know, not necessarily everybody needs it, but there are one or two people who have struggled since leaving. So we try and create that friendly family environment where we can support each other. Well, mental health for people that leave the military is, you know, not looked at, it wasn't looked at for a long, long no. time. And I remember having an electrician come round um, to our house and he'd been in the army for 22 years. That's all he'd known throughout his entire mm. life. He'd been surrounded by his platoon and all of that type of stuff. And he came round to me and he was actually in tears because it was his like week two out of the army and wow. he was by himself. Yeah. And he just didn't know how to cope at yeah. all. So having you know, matches like that will mean the world to people. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we started it four or five years ago. Um, it's relatively small. We get about 150 people, to mm -hmm. 180 people turn up. We're trying to expand it and get more more electri uh, electricians, <laughs> electrician veterans coming along. Um, just just to be, you know, be part of that network and just yeah. relive relive some old times. Now, cricket sometimes is seen as an elite sport for elite people. Yeah. Um, what's your thoughts on that as an ex-officer in the army running cricket events? Well, <laughs> it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is difficult. But I think, you know, you've only got to look at what the ECB have been trying to do in the last five to ten years, you know, expanding, expanding and, and sort of using cricket as the vehicle to, to, to get youngsters out and playing sport. So I know, I know the hundred was kind of... Uh, very marmite for a lot of people. So for those that don't know, the 100 is a competition that runs during the school holidays. They have 100 balls rather than a 20-20 game, which has 20 overs, which people found quite complicated. And it was the aim of it was to encourage mainly new fans to come into the cricket game. Yeah. And everybody was incredibly sceptical about it. It's three seasons in now, and it's done what it said it was going to do. Yeah. And it's incredible. But it's also given that, I think, more than anything, it's given the women's game a mm. boost, which is, you know, if you look at how the number of professional women we have playing now in this country, you know, it's very new in its infancy, but we're starting to compete against the Australians. We did really well, I think, against them in it's the brilliant. Ashes. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, that that's bringing in the audiences and creating more opportunity for more people. And again, the difference in the standards for the women's game compared to the men's game. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the men played in Durham Sala, I think it was. Yeah. And they were complaining about the outfield being too sandy and, you know, they were concerned about injuries. Yeah. And I was listening to a podcast uh, where I had Rachel Hayho Flynn, or I can't remember her name yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and she was saying that some of the pitches that they played on had cow pads. So that was kind of the, and that was international fixtures. Mm. So that was the standard of the women's game like 10 years ago. Uh, and it's just moved on so much. Yeah, oh, it's it's phenomenal now. And the girls, you know, I was I played golf actually last last week with the head coach John Lewis, and uh, you know the professionalism that they're bringing to the women's game. John, good thinker, really smart guy. Um, you know, some of the stuff he was sort of discussing with us over the, over a round of golf about their focus, how they focus, how they train is yeah. you know it's fantastic. And you know. It probably could be still be seen to be elite because you see a lot of the public school children um, sort of tend to play a lot more, tend to be advantaged a lot more. But there's a lot of programs. I know Ebony Rainford Brent runs a program called the ACE program mm -hmm. out of Surrey. That's encouraging, you know, Asians and ethnic minorities to play the game. There's a lot of work the MCC does with the, the MCC Foundation around trying to, to broaden the, the network of, of young children or people to the game. Um, it, it's just amazing, you know, the, the, work, the work is going in and it can only benefit the game as a whole. Well, it can because we're going to be choosing from a bigger pool of bigger people. Bigger pool, absolutely. Um, it's, it really is. As Phil Tufnell would like to say, his, his stock phrase, if you've ever heard Phil Tufnell talking, it's as simple as that. Yes, it is simple. He, he just loves, he yeah. loves saying that. I mean, one of the things I would say, I, you know, I was very lucky in 2019, just before the, the uh, pandemic, to manage the MCC tour to Nepal. Okay. And... and you know, we played we played one three day game, two two day games, and three twenty twenty games, and there were twenty five thousand people in Kathmandu turned up to watch the MCC yeah. play against the Nepalese uh, national side, and, and it was just phenomenal. The enthusiasm and energy for the game was just immense. Amazing. It was just such a privilege to be there and and sort of take that team out there. So, and how did you get on? Um, we we lost the first one day game we won the three day game which was red ball so they weren't used to playing red ball cricket right. at all 
and then I think we won we won the T20s. But we did have a very good side as well. You know, we had predominantly county players and a couple of test players in the side as well. So now, when you were in the army, you must have had some stories of cricket. So, is there anything you can broadcast of you being in the army and cricket? <laughs> well, the only thing I lots of stories as you can imagine and being young and fit and liking to go out and socialize we always used to play oxford and cambridge on a three-day game okay we were always booked into the the bar- the local barracks we never ever stayed in the local barracks we always used to take our sleeping bags <laughs> and sleep either in the pavilion or in the changing rooms so that we were we never overslept and had to drive the next morning so okay uh, yeah that you know now i have an RAF story, okay, yep. regarding playing cricket for the station. I never quite got to playing for the RAF, but I played for the station. Yep. And uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. It might have been something to do with the Queen's Jubilee of some sort. So this is 25 years ago, there or thereabouts. So it must yep. have been that sort of time. Yep. And uh, we were playing at the local cricket club, the RAF station against the local cricket club. And this was all being filmed. And we got flown in on a helicopter and then landed by the pitch in our whites, and then we had to run out, and then I was opening the batting, and literally had to run to the centre, take my guard, and take the first ball. I think they would call that misappropriation (laughs) of funds these days. (laughs) Do you know how far it was from the station to the local cricket club? I don't know. Three miles. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely misappropriation of funds. And we used a helicopter for that. uh, But it was all for for the right reasons, I believe. Uh, We used to play against, uh, at Sir Paul Getty's estate, we used to play against the SAS. Okay. And they used to fly um, fly some of the guys in. But equally, I, you know, a couple of the guys had to leave at tea time. So where are you going? Oh, I've got to go. To, I'm on operations tomorrow. Right. I'm going to Bryce Norton to fly out onto an operation. So, you know, people would come in and go and you think, well, what's going on? But off you go. They're busy guys. Well, we're going to talk more about cricket leadership very shortly and how the England men's test team yep. has changed so much over the last couple of years. So right back after this. Made locally in Bath. This is Radio Bath. So it's Richard Bovazan back here until midday today, just chatting with uh, with other Richard here about cricket and people that you meet. Yeah. So, so who have you met? Oh, just, um, well, obviously playing at St Paul Getty's ground many years ago. It used to be sort of likened to the uh, an invitation for lunch on a Sunday was likened to the Queen's Garden Party. Okay. So I chatted to Sir Richard Attenborough there. Uh, Old Dickie. Yeah, the Lord, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, jo- uh, Joanna Lumley, uh, Julian Pettifer, Leslie Crowther. And Leslie Crowther used to be the president of the uh, Bristol County Alliance Cricket League uh, many, many years ago when it first started. So, right. you know, that's the beauty of, of the game. You can meet sort of... A-list celebrities and film film stars down, you know, to, to anybody really, you know, it's such a breadth of people that you meet. Yeah. All with one thing in common, you know, the love of the game. And it's a bit like, um, you know, dancing, we'll chat about dancing no doubt later. I know Richard from dancing, which is not a surprise really, is it? Let's face it. Um, but it's a leveller as well. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you do in your professional life. You know, your love of cricket or how you play cricket, you know, how you talk about it, actually it's the same level. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody's got the same thing in common. Just yeah. just the, the, the spirit of the game that it brings, the camaraderie. I mean, that's the one thing that I struggled with when I left the, the army, actually, was the camaraderie of being in amongst the soldiers and the cricket environment. You know, it was a big family sort of environment and that's one of the things as i said earlier we're trying to recreate with this legends day bringing mm. bringing veterans back back and sort of creating that family environment again that's great now lots of people don't get cricket we're going to yep. talk about leadership in a second about it okay i'm just going to very quickly run through the three different formats or the four different formats officially that there are so we have the 100 and 2020 which are the short formats of the game yep they're really exciting and they take place over three to four hours okay you then have the one days which are 50 over games and over consists of six balls and that takes about six hours, six to seven hours to play a one-day game generally. And then you have test cricket, which takes place over five days or can take up to five days. And lots of people go, it's really boring. And we're going to talk a minute about how it's not so boring anymore yeah. and how it used to be probably a little bit boring. But I have a, an analogy which somebody said to me once about test cricket. And they likened it to bringing up children. 
and they said, if you're watching Test Cricket, it's like bringing up children because although there are quite a lot of dull moments in it, when the good things happen, it has much more meaning to it. Absolutely. And I thought that was a beautiful yeah. way of describing yeah. Test Cricket. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love Test Cricket because it's quite strategic and, mm. and tactical at the same time. And, you know, there's lots of, lots of considerations and decision making that needs to happen. Um, you know, every batsman has their own unique approach to the game. So therefore watching their techniques and trying to work out how best to get them out or where best to bowl at them. There's a lot of lot of uh, tactical thinking that needs to go on. And cricket's an unusual sport in that it's an, a team game played by individuals. That's right, yeah. Which again yeah. is very unusual in yeah. that regards. Now, we're going to talk about England Test Team D- deliberately, okay. Yes. Now, back in the seventies, we had Jeffrey Boycott, yep. legend, our Jeffrey, yep. and you know he was famed for playing incredibly slowly. Yes, he was, and dull. Well, you know, some would say it was dull, but actually, did he achieve his his goals? Yes, over and four did he days. Achi- <laughs> did he achieve the team's help? Achieve the team's goals, but you know, it's as you say, it's a, an individual sport played in a team environment. Yeah. No, he had his place. Yeah. And I've no problem with that at all. But the way that... So two years ago, England test team was probably at its lowest point. I think that's fairly fair to say in the last 20 years or so. Um, they'd just yes. gone out to the West Indies. Yes. They'd left behind James Anderson and Stuart Broad. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily a great environment to be in. Joe Root had been captain for five years or so, and you could see he was just shattered yeah. um, from the whole thing. Um, did you envisage at that point how it was going to change? I wouldn't have had a clue. No, absolutely not. I mean, what the new leadership of the ECB and the team have put into place is just phenomenal and has changed the way people view Test cricket now. So, is... so for those that don't know, yes. expand on that. So um, Andrew Strauss stood down as director of cricket, I believe, and Rob Key, former England and Kent County cricketer, was put into the post of managing director of the of cricket. Um, Joe Root stood down as captain, along with I can't remember who the coach was then. Was it uh, Chris Silverwood? I think yes. And they employed Brenda McCullum, who's a, a New Zealander, very explosive batsman in his day, and they appointed Ben Stokes as captain. And what changed was that all of a sudden their approach to Test cricket changed and just became sort of much more expressive. They allowed the players, from what what appears from the outside, they allowed the players to go out and express themselves and not to worry too much about the outcome. So just focus on the the process and how they played and how they wanted to play. I suppose they had, you know, in terms of leadership, they had absolute clarity in terms of what they wanted to achieve as a team. And, And they, as a collective unit, that's what they went out to try and achieve and interestingly from the leadership perspective Ben Stokes actually um, gave a lot away himself very selflessly he would go out and almost over yes over be uh, be overly aggressive to say to the team even if you get out doing this I don't care yeah and it was the as you say the clarity of message yeah that's you know I think probably that that's the one thing that you see they have absolute clarity in how they want to play as a team they want to entertain people they want to make test cricket exciting they don't they don't i don't think they see a draw well that's the thing isn't it people say how can you play cricket for 5 days and end up with a draw yeah they've seemed to taken that that out of the equation now not worry it's either a win or a lose yeah and and that's what people really seem to like you know the purists perhaps aren't quite so on board with that in terms of well Actually, it's not just about winning and losing. Actually, you know, you can draw the game. But You can. I think what they're doing is, you know, they, they've almost taken on single-handedly. They're going to try and change the way people view Test cricket. And yeah. apart from the big three of England, Australia and India, the rest of the world, it isn't very well supported. No. Um, and I love the fact that I've listened to hundreds of podcasts over the last couple of years, and they've all said, ah, it's okay, you can play this way until you come up against X, Y, or Z. And apart from going to India, which they're doing next year, they've played X, Y, or Z and still and done still it, won it and still mm. won. Yeah. Um, so they can do it. And the thing that fascinated me this summer was the way that the Australians approached the game. Mm. They seem to sort of approach it very much in the traditional old English way, being quite defensive. 
whereas before they were always seen to be the more aggressive yeah. side, whereas England sort of took that away from them completely this year. And uh, whilst whilst I I predicted that Australia would win 4-1 oh, at wow, the start, okay. actual fact, on reflection, England should have won 4-1. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, and perhaps you could argue that they made a few few errors in terms of their leadership decisions on the first test by declaring early or... Let's talk about that quickly. Now we're going full-on gig cricket <laughs> yes, moment we here. Are. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine, OK? So what happened on the first day? I can't remember. Oh, OK. So you, I, I can remember it. So Ben Stokes declared before the end. Yes. So, so they still so had wickets right. left. So Joe Root, who, who's England's premier batsman, was on 118, going very well. And he, I think he was down to the last man... Nine wickets, so you've got to get ten people out to, to close an innings. England had nine people out, so Joe Root was batting with the last person and they declared on, I think, 396 or something like that. So they could have batted long, longer and all of a sudden they decided to declare, to, to declare. Ultimately, on day five, Australia needed, um, I think it was around 70 with two wickets left. And they managed to get over the line. Now, had England batted for a bit longer on the first day, Australia might have needed more runs on the last afternoon, which would have given us a slightly better chance of bowling them out. And there were two ways of looking at it, weren't there? So you had the... What ended up happening is that the end result wasn't good, but was the decision correct? Because they had 20 minutes to bowl at them at the end of the day, and they could have taken a couple of wickets. They could have done and then it would have been different. So it's the classic thing of, you know, I've heard Martin Lewis say this example many times, that if I flip a coin and if it comes down heads, I give you a pound. Um, I give you a thousand pounds. If it comes down tails, you have to give me a pound. OK, I flip the coin and it comes down on my way. OK, was that a bad decision to take the bet on? No, but it was a bad outcome. Yeah. So I personally believe the actual decision was correct. The outcome wasn't. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. life. Yeah, that's life. And that is you life. Know, it's ifs, buts and maybes, isn't it? If if we'd have done this, then you just don't know. Uh, in hindsight, probably might not have been, but hindsight's a wonderful thing. It is. And, you know, we're not blessed with that, unfortunately. No. Now, there's been many cricket captains over the years. Probably one of the most famous ones was Mike Brearley. Yes. Okay. What's your thoughts on Mike? Uh, smashing, smashing leader, smashing person. I've met him a couple of times at Lord's. Um yeah, he 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 just he he very much knew about the psychology of of getting into people's heads and and motivating them and and leading them by motivating them in the right way. I think um, wasn't the best English cricketer. No, I was going to ask that. I mean, he, when we say wasn't the best, it was pretty much the team carried him yeah. to a large degree, and yet he was still in the team. But he held his place as a leader yeah. because he could motivate and and cajole the players t to deliver the, the results that they needed. Yeah. I mean, you know, I th you know, he took over for the second stint from Ian Botham, who'd had quite a bad period, albeit playing against, the, I think he played against two series against the West Indies back-to-back -back and lost them all. And this is when the West Indies were at their point, uh, wasn't yes, it? Yes, it was. 1981, I think mm. it was. And, you know, he just knew how to get into Ian Botham's head and motivate Ian Botham. And, you know, the rest is history. He was an amazing, amazing cricketer. But obviously, you know, he had the right leader, you know, steering him in the right direction. So, And it's amazing that what he did was probably 30 or 40 years ahead of his time and that he, yeah. he worked on psychology of players um, to make them better players rather than worrying about their fitness, for instance. <laughs> it was all about psychology. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. Right, we're going to have another little break for music. When we come back, we're going to talk more about cricket and leadership. Back after this. Across Bath, Westbury and Warminster, this is Radio Bath. So we're back. It's Richard Bovesen here until midday today. Got Richard Greater-X coming yep. in, which is all good. I will get the name right every time if I can. Um, now we're going to talk about cricket and leadership still. Yep. Now cricket is an unusual sport for me in regarding its leadership process because the captain, unlike other sports, is also part of the management team. Now, if you look at football, for instance, the captain is almost an ambassador for the club and on the field, he will kind of try and G up the troops and all of that type of stuff. But it's the manager that will make all the decisions regarding who's in the team. Cricket's not like that. It's quite different. Um, 
I think England have, England have tried a number of different models around selection. They've had the coach and the captain select. They've had national selectors. As, and, and I'm, I'm not sure what they've settled on today, what, the, what, the, what they see as the best process. It certainly takes away that, that conflict between the captain mm. and, and the individuals. Um, but I think ultimately, if you're looking at leadership, it's about having a, a very clear goal as to what you're trying to achieve as a team or as a unit. Um, and don't forget in cricket today, you know, if we think back to 20, uh, we spoke earlier about Ian Botham and Mike Brearley, yeah. the backroom staff within a cricket team today, or cricket uh, national team today, is completely different. There's analysts, you've got analysts involved, you've got uh, batting, bowling, fielding specialists, coaching, um, you've got team managers, assistant team managers, you know, there's a lot more people involved in the process of, of putting the team on, on the field. So selection it's it's yeah it's changed an awful lot over the years and i don't think i'm not sure whether we've set, settled on what is the best solution but there are a lot of people involved in the decision making around putting the best team on the field to win the game now i was listening to something the other day and they said that certainly a few years ago the selectors would choose who was on the tour and then as soon as the tour started certainly if you went to australia yeah. it would be the coach and the captain yeah. that would be deciding what the team was so as soon as kind of the boat left and it's not a boat anymore yeah. um it would be down to the coach and the captain yeah um quite possibly and that that must have some form of you mentioned conflict of interest um now again going back to cricket being sometimes known as a, as a posh boys club which mm. it certainly has been for many many years i think it's much better now than it used to be but there's still an element of that um is it Sometimes you feel like the the captain's picking his mates almost. I think you've got to you've got to be objective all the way through the process and say right, who are we playing against? What is a what is what's the, you know, there's a lot of decision making needs to go on. What's the pitch look like? What are the weather conditions? Where are our strengths? Where do we need to make sure that we you know where are we covered? Do we have the right field you know good fielders? I mean, I play over 50s cricket now, and that's terrible. Why is it terrible? <laughs> well, there's a lot of things that are taken out of your control. Like, you know, people aren't quite as mobile and quite as flexible. <laughs> so you have to make sure when you're picking a team that you've got, first and foremost, you've got five bowlers who can bowl uh, nine overs each, you know, and, and will get through bowling nine <laughs> overs each. Without breaking down. <laughs> without, without an injury. I have, you know, I remember pl we played a game last year, I think it was against Kent, First game of the season, uh, third over of the day, one of our guys pulled a hamstring and that was him out of the game for the whole... Yeah. So we filled it with 10 players and we batted with 10 <laughs> players. So there are lots of other considerations to be taken. But, I, you know, going back to the, the point about the captain and the, the coach being on tour, I think it's down to, uh, once again, what is being absolutely clear on what are the objectives of the, of the tour. Yeah. What I mean, I, as I said, I was very lucky to captain two or three tours for the MCC overseas. And I, you know, whilst they're great experiences traveling to sort of all sorts of different countries, you know, I've been to Gambia and Ghana, and, you know, a whole host of different places. And, and the manager, we always set out with the manager setting out his, his objectives for the tour and his goals and his expectations of the players in terms of the administration. I would always follow up with a, a, a cricketing, um, expect my cricketing expectations of individuals you know you're on tour representing a, a, a renowned club yeah but actually you're also there to gain experiences and you know some of those experiences are on the field a lot of those experiences are off the field and I always took the view that actually if you're not fit to cross the the line at 10 o'clock and give it your very best then you won't be selected if you can stay out drinking or taking your sleeping bag along enjoy yes taking your sleep that was a very long time ago <laughs> but if you can stay out socializing and and people do like to go out and have a yeah. good night out and you know probably 10 15 years ago now because i'm getting on a bit but you know to nightclubs or you know if you can't do that if you can't if you're not good enough or you can't perform after when you cross the line then don't expect to play yeah. And, and it's up to the individual. 
And that's all I do. I just say to people, it's up to you. If you can do it, then do it. If you can't do it, it's your responsibility to get yourself to bed at a time that you know that you can perform the next day. Yeah. And and once you empower people to take their own, you know, behave in the right way, then that's up to them. And they generally do. People do because they don't want to let you down as an individual or as a team. People love ownership of, yeah. of things, don't they? Yeah, so they're, absolutely. they're owning their own way in which they're going to be. Yeah. You know, you give them you give them that empowerment and, you, and they they trust you and you value their their input. So yeah, absolutely. Now, we're going to kind of use cricket in business as well. So remind us what you do actually on a day to day basis at the moment. Um, I work with um, my partner and we do resilient leadership. OK. And that's what's the website for that for those that don't listen? <laughs> uh, it's www.resilientleaderselements.com. Beautifully done. So kind of going to look at a cricket captain and some of the things that the cricket captain has to do and then how is that applied in business okay so we're going to start off with leading by example so let's use ben stokes as that example by the way so we're using ben stokes here he is he's leading by example think in business how do how do business people do that as well um i think leading by examples is an interesting one because actually sometimes a leader of a business might not be the best person to do, you know, do a task or, or, or lead a, a particular area. So it's no, when you say leading by example, it's knowing when to step up or when to step mm. back. So do you step up and lead or do you step back and support? Similarly, with a, with a, um, in cricket, I think it's, you know, you're out there on your own. You know when to, when you've got to perform or well, you've got to perform every time you go to the the middle yeah you're, you're there to perform sometimes that's slightly different in business but i think from a business perspective it starts and in cricket it starts with that clarity what is the objective of the of the team yeah what is the objective of the business who is best to lead this bit who is best to step am i am i required to lead this bit or am i required to support and I suppose as a cricket captain, obviously you can't do everything. You can't no. bat, bowl and wicket keep and catch the ball. So you well, have to make those decisions. Yeah. Well, Ben Stokes, <laughs> up until he injured his knee, he pretty much did do everything, you know. He definitely I re- tried. I remember the catch that he got in the in the last World Cup in 2019 when he sort of came in a bit too far. They've shown it a lot on telly yeah. recently. And he caught it running backwards t- with his hand turned, turned round the wrong way and caught it over his shoulder. Yeah. And then he comes on and takes all the crucial wickets and gets all the runs but um so he's he's quite unique in his his abilities um but you're right yeah you can't do everything and so knowing knowing who the right people are to deliver the task is is critical do you know what I was really pleased about when um, Rob Key actually got the job? So Rob Key, for those that don't know who he is, uh, again, ex-cricketer, uh, he was commentating for many years. Yeah. And that's what he did. It wasn't like he was in management or anything like that at all. And he was just simply commentating. And so many people were surprised when he got the job. And then what he has done amazing well in a leadership role is he's just simply taken the simple decisions and gone... Well, that's the obvious one. We'll do that. Mm. Ben Stokes was the obvious choice to be the test captain. Yeah. And he didn't try and go elsewhere. It's, it's interesting, you know, I'll, I'll go away from cricket, actually, mm. at the moment. And if you look at rugby at the moment, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the in the Rugby World Cup about getting the right players in the right place to deliver the result. And that's really what Rob Key's done. He's mm. He's enabled the right people to be in the right place to get the job done. And And I think, you know... From what I, from what I've heard, Brendan McCullum was very, very clear on what he he wanted and expected of the team and how he wanted to to play the the style of cricket that he wanted the team to play, and and you know they've all embraced that as a as a unit, you know. Yeah. And so yeah, it's very smart and it's easy, isn't it? When things are going well, it, it you know it's very easy as a leader to say, oh yeah, what a great leader. It's when things are don't go quite so well yeah. that you actually see some people's ability as a leader. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, just with cricket and compared to business, um, tactical knowledge. Now, that this is a massive one in cricket because the captain will, you know, will make a huge amount of choices yeah. on field. So it's actually live action. Now, in business, of course, you can make a tactical decision that won't actually have an impact for a year, possibly. But this is all live happening right now and that must be quite a different type of leadership yeah uh, you you you, it's very situational isn't it you react to what's going on in front of you 
but there's a lot of preparation that's gone on before that you know there's the training there's the analysis that all the anal all the analytics people do there's you're not just a, actually you're not just actually the captain on the field you've got your wicket keeper who's who's giving you feedback and 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 data you know there's lots of data points that are happening as you as you're playing so the wicket keeper's giving you feedback the bowlers are giving you feedback you know there's there's senior players who've got a lot of experience who've been in those situations before they're giving you feedback yeah you you're the one who's got to synthesize it all and make the decisions that's the tough thing because yeah. there's a lot of data coming into you um, and it's not like it's written down or anything. It's all being verbally given to. Yeah. Par from England had that very strange system, didn't they, of yeah, the numbers the and numbers, the letters. That's right. Um, Never found out what that was about. Did you not? Not in your inside circles? No. Nobody's no, ever found it out? No. Well, I'm sure that I could ask, but, um, yeah, I've never, I, I didn't. I've never really thought to ask somebody that, but uh, it would be interesting to, to find I, out. I would love to know. But I remember, I think, the, the South Africans at one point, I think they, they had a... Um, an earpiece in in the captain's ear, okay. and, and they were talking via the phone to the guy, the captain on the field. Oh wow! No, I didn't know I about think, that one. I, and I can't remember when it was. It was a long time ago. So um, I think it was in the Hansi Cronje years. Okay, but let's not talk about those no. ones. And let's not talk about sandpaper either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the last thing I'm going to ask on this one is, again, massive role in cricket, but also in business as well, is communication. Yeah, absolutely. So in cricket, explain that, and then in business as well. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I've talked a lot this morning about being clear and having a clear objective. You know, communication is key. Uh, whether you're on the field or off the field, you know, being clear on what your expectations are, communicating those expectations, standards that you expect of, of players. Um, you know, some people some people need to train and, and prepare in depth. Others don't. I, I you know. That's a classic case about being fair to everybody, isn't it? People often think that being fair is treating everybody the same, but that's not the case. No. No. You need uh, to be treating people differently compared to what they yeah, need. Yeah, understand. And that's awareness, isn't it? Awareness of the individuals and the environments that you're wo working in. You know, it's very different playing in India or Nepal or, you know, the, the, the pitches and the environments are very different to playing in England. And, and then, again, it changes when you go to Australia and it goes, yeah. it can change from one side of Australia to another. So, you know, there's a lot of... Communications is key throughout in all in all walks of life. I think personally, you know, if you get your, if you get it wrong, you know it, and if you get it right, it just happens, and nobody really comments on it. But it's when you do get it wrong that you <laughs> tend to find find out. And and I think you know that's that's the key, isn't it? When you're dropping somebody from the side, and I've done that a couple of times over the last few years, and, and not. Not for not because they're not good enough, or because actually there's somebody who's got a different skill set or brings a different skill set to the side for a particular game, and then you've got to phone that person up and have that conversation. Mm. And and you know you can be sure that people aren't never going to agree with you because it's a personal thing for, to them. Yeah. But you know, as long as your intent is positive. And you and they know that you're doing it for the right thing, right reasons. You're not just doing it because you want to pick your mates. Yeah, you're doing it for the team and the outcome of the of the of the group. So, I mean, I remember going back to football, which I used to play to a half decent level. Is that uh, I went along and trained with the team for for a couple a few sessions, and then we had the game on the Saturday. Mm. And you know, I'm I'm very plain in which in which way I look at something. And as a sports person, you know when you've done really well, and you know when you've not done very well. Mm. And I'm very objective in that aspect. And I'd gone to these training sessions, and I knew that I was probably the best player that was in that team by some margin I'd drop down a level or two and yeah and I went along on the Saturday and uh yeah he didn't pick me and he, I said why haven't you picked me he went well my mates are here yeah and at that point there I, I left the team abruptly yeah um because I was like I don't want to be part of any of that but it was the communication behind that you know and again if I'd have been told three days out you're not going to play because I'm going to play my mates I'd have been okay but but the outcome would have still been the same you'd have left the team because because he wasn't picking, it wasn't based on the benefit. Well, it was based on the benefits to him. Yes. Not to the not to the overall team. No, so. not in the slightest. But that was a an unusual example. I'm aware of that. But uh, <laughs> but communication, you know, if, like again, another um, team I played for. He always used to announce the team 
before we went out and mentally I wasn't prepared to do whichever role because I could play most of the yeah. roles in a team. Um, I wanted to know four or five days beforehand. Even if I wasn't playing, that didn't bother me because yeah. I could mentally prepare for that. So the communication for that. That mental preparation piece is really important, I think, certainly if in terms of selection of teams. I, I remember a couple of times I said right at the beginning I was an opening batsman. Hmm. And on a couple of occasions, you turn up to a game, you wake up in the morning preparing for the game, whether you do it subconsciously or subconsciously. But if you turn up to the ground and you start at one o'clock and at 12 o'clock you're warming up and you win the toss and you're batting, mentally you're preparing to open the batting. Then all of a sudden the, the captain says to you, you're batting at number four today. Mm. That completely destabilised me because all my mental preparation had gone into walking out at the start I didn't I couldn't even well I didn't even know when to put my pads on no. what, at what time of the day or when to put my pads on when to start preparing whereas if I was opening the batting I, I, I was I was clear yeah. so you're right communication in all walks of life is, is, is vitally important whether you're in business or in sport you know absolutely when you get as I said when you get it right nobody really <laughs> worries about it when you get it wrong you know about it's it it's a bit like a referee in football isn't it <laughs> yeah you notice when they're not getting not, it quite right yeah going to have another little break when we come back going to talk about a subject dear to both of our hearts and that's dancing well let's Maybe. see we'll see <laughs> uh, back after this made locally in Bath this this is Radio Bath. So here we are back again. I've got the lovely Richard here. And we're going to talk about dancing. For those that aren't aware, I'm a dance teacher normally. I also appear on the radio, of course. And Richard has not long been dancing, have you? No, I started in the new year, actually. Um, I think it was. I think it might have been near Valentine's Day. Was it? Why did you start? Um, because my other half, Rachel, she loves dancing and said, I would love to go dancing with you. And so I thought, oh, well, let's have a date night. And I'd seen Ciroc advertised. I knew about Ciroc because a good friend of mine had done it many, many years ago, who you may know. Who was that? Gary Mumford. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know Gary. And uh, he sort of, he swears by and thinks... He's, he's a very good dancer. Yeah, he is good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but let's hope he never listens to this and hears that. <laughs> Haven't seen him in years. <laughs> no, good. And uh, so I... I thought, right, that Monday night, let's go, let's go and do Ciroc. Uh, and so we went along, and we've been going since Feb. So. How did you find it on your first night then? Because I know a lot of people get <laughs> well, petrified. Um, I'd done it a couple of times before. Okay. Um, when I was living in the sort of Surrey area, um, so I knew what to expect. Um, but I just like music. I just like the. Like, I used to like. I used to go to Longleat many, many years ago, and hopefully a few listeners will recall the the, the nightclub that used to be at Longleat. It's called Oscars. Okay. Um, in the sort of uh, cafeteria area, and uh, so we always used to go there as a group of lads, and just like the music, and just like dancing, and and you know it keeps you fit as well, doesn't it? So yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, just just remembering some of the moves is quite daunting. What do, what do you find the challenges of dancing then? So it's for those that aren't aware, it's partner dancing. So yes. as a lead and a follow, normally a man and a lady, but it's not necessarily that way anymore. Um, and uh, yeah, Richard, you generally do the leading. I, I don't remember seeing you following just yet. <laughs> no, I haven't ever done that and I won't ever do that. So You've danced with me though. Yeah, yeah but I've led. I've led. Yeah. So that's fine. That's okay. fine. Um, yeah, it's just the, the, the most difficult thing is just rem so be it, I just don't want to be repetitive and just do the same old moves time and time again. It's just keeping the and also I'm not very good at dancing to the beat. I'm not great at listening. I sort of lose the beat of, of the songs and. But you can hear the beat. So we've had some private one-to-one -one lessons as well. Yeah. And you can hear the music really, really well. Okay, yeah, let's be honest though, Richard. When we did our private one-to-one, -one, you said to Rachel, right, you move on the beat, and Richard, you move when you hear the beat. And I was half a beat out. And you said to me, yes, that's exactly what I thought was happening. <laughs> so I was always half a beat out to Rachel and the music. So. But we corrected that, and you're much better now, which is... Uh, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. Um, what do you enjoy about it, though? Ah. Um, the people are very friendly. It's a great environment, you know. Um, everybody's everybody's very supportive of each other. And whilst I remember we went to a um, 
what are they called? Those the freestyles. Freestyle nights. That's right. And I absolutely froze. Okay, so a freestyle night. So normally on a class night, we have classes from half seven till nine yeah. o'clock, and then we have freestyle time, which is where you can we put the music on and you can dance however you wish to who with whoever you wish from nine until half past ten. A freestyle night is normally a Friday or a Saturday. Yeah. Four hours. Just music, no no classes. So, so the the lesson night when we have the lessons, you you learn three moves as a beginner, and then you do three more moves as an intermediate. So you've got six moves that you've learned that night. So you can develop and practice them on the night. On a freestyle night, you you go into it cold, and I absolutely froze, and I couldn't remember any move. I, well, one move I think I remember, and I remember dancing with. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Dot I was dancing with, and I did the same move eight, <laughs> eight times on the trot. And I just had to apologise to her at the end and say, sorry, Dot, I've just forgotten completely everything that I've been taught. So That's yeah. all right. It happens to us all. Yeah. If it makes you feel any better. So I had a holiday earlier this year, so it was about 10 days, and I don't think I danced a couple of days either side. So it was about two weeks off. Uh, I came back. My first dance was at a freestyle. Zoe, my wife, was there. And uh, after about a minute into it, she went, are you going to do another travelling return or what? Because <laughs> I, very similar, had been doing the same things over and over again. Because if you have a break or anything, or your mind's just not in flow, yeah. then, yeah, you often do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, but I, but I do, I just like the music, listen to the music, try to listen to the music and just go with the flow. Yeah. And most people are supportive and... and uh, and what do you hope to get out of it as you go forwards then? I haven't really thought about that. It's just, it's just, it's just a break from, from the norm. So, you know, we're quite keen at trying to stay active and mo trying to be as mobile as possible. And so dancing is just another activity that we can do that's slightly different. I know Rachel goes rowing and we've tried kayaking. I play golf and... And I still play cricket. So, you know, it's just keeping the body moving. Um, I do find, though, Richard, I've got to be honest with you. Go I on. do find that my shoulders at the end of an evening are, I am in pain. Are you? Yes. Okay, well, <laughs> off air, we'll have a look at why that is. Um, I think it'll probably be the most dull radio if I go through yeah. the technical reasons behind it. But yeah. uh, but I already know the answer. Do you? I do, yes. Uh, and I will fix that for you, you in my uh, you. slight expertise that I but theoretically it's, it's have. It's great fun. It's very supportive. Everybody's very friendly. It, and uh, it, it keeps you mobile. It, you know, you get a bit of a sweat on. And uh, and you know it's good it's good to be mobile. Now going back to the cricket very quickly, mm. we did have an instance in dancing. Okay, so we have very bright lights up on our stage, and you were quite close to the stage. And there was one day when I looked down on you because okay. I was up on the stage, and you kind of were two tone. It's probably the best way to describe <laughs> it. And I and I decided not to say anything at the time. And I spoke to Rachel afterwards, and she went. Oh, yeah, I'd never even noticed. And this was a day in which you'd been playing cricket the day before yeah. with a hat on. Yeah. And therefore there was this perfect, a bit like watching the Ryder Cup recently. They yeah. all came out, they had, per, they had very white heads and very tanned faces. Yeah. Um, I did mention it the following week when you were there. Yeah, that's Rachel right. gave me permission. I do, yeah, because, because I've played cricket for many, many years, whenever I go out into the sun, my arms, my, the V, the cricketer's <laughs> V, and my face get, get very brown very quickly. I yeah. just naturally tanned. You do so, uh, yeah. But yeah, the the light bounced <laughs> off. It was it was it was amusing for me anyway. And I, I, I hope resisted. I didn't. I hope I didn't look like a glitter ball though. <laughs> I can possibly not comment on this occasion. <laughs> we can have another little break when we come back. It's a quick fire round time. Ooh. We've never done this before, so we'll be back right after this. Bath and West Wiltshire's. Radio Bath. So we're back. It's the quick fire round time with Richard. He's been our guest. Remind everybody very quickly, Richard, what's the website of the company you work for? Resilientleaderselements.com. Beautiful. So that's all about leadership. And we've been discussing today cricket and leadership, a passion yeah. for both of us. So quick fire round, 11 questions for you. First question, everybody gets to know this one. What is your favourite ice cream? Vanilla. Vanilla. I would not have put you down as a vanilla. Closely followed by chocolate chip. Okay, all right, fair enough. Any particular type of vanilla? Um, no. No, just vanilla. Just vanilla. Fair enough. Are you tidy or mess? I, oh, I, go on. I, I do love, and there's a little, um, I love the Marshfield ice cream. Again, again local to Bath. Marshfield Absolutely. ice cream. Yeah, it's lovely. Lovely. Thank you. Uh, are you tidy or messy? 
Uh, tidy. Tidy. Uh, you look like a tidy person. I have to say, always very well dressed, always Thank very you. smart. Thank so, you. yeah, a tidy person. Uh, love or hate roller coasters? We have to think. Love. Love them. Okay, favourite roller coaster then that you can think of? Um, can't remember its name, but it's a, a not a thought park. Um, so you've got Alton Towers. Okay, so you've got many there. There's Rita or, uh, no, Saw's Thought Park. There's loads of good ones there. I can't remember. There's the always the weird one at Alton Towers. It's been closed for quite some time, which is the house, where you go in and the whole house kind of rotates round. It makes me feel just slightly bizarre. I think the one that I did like, they had an incident on it. So. Oh, that is Smiler. Smiler, that was the one. Yes, Smiler. Yes, yes. a fantastic roller coaster. You get yeah. halfway around and think, whew, and then you go, I'm only halfway around. <laughs> yeah, blimey. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you hang your toilet roll over the top or behind the back? Over the top. You had to think about it then. For the benefit of the tape, he's literally just done the benefits of how, the hang, how it would hang over the top. Uh, yeah. Yep. Over the top is the correct way. Yes. Uh, do you eat your choc your chocolate from the fridge or from the cupboard? From the cupboard. From the cupboard. Okay. Although, now, although I'm not allowed chocolate. Are you not? Why no, not? Rachel didn't let me eat chocolate. Now, when Rachel was on a couple of weeks ago, okay, she eats her chocolate from the freezer. Ah. Are you aware of this? No. Oh, so have a look in your I freezer. Have to go have a look in the there freezer. is going to be some chocolate in there that you didn't even know existed. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so you're from the cupboard, yeah. and she's from the freezer. Fair in fact, it never, it never even makes the cupboard. Does it not? It just <laughs> no. gets out of the bag from the shopping yeah. and straight in. But, yeah. but you're not allowed chocolate. No. Fair enough. Try not to. Do you make your bed in the morning? Yes. Why? Um, fresh start every day. Okay. There's a, there's a really great um, video clip of an American general talking about the importance of making... I think he's a Marine. Hmm. The importance of making your bed... Uh, at the beginning of every day. Yeah. And again, going back to military times, I remember going through basic training yeah. and we had our bed packs. I don't know if... Oh, yeah. Off, bed. The, the wonderful... So for those that don't know what a bed pack is, imagine uh, maybe about 10 sheets or blankets that are quite thin that are folded up to an exact square and then they had another blanket with a wrap around it and it had to be a certain tightness. Um, we got to the point where we made it so it was acceptable and then we would leave it on our bed and just sleep on the floor. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so we didn't have to do it every day. Yeah. I, I remember at Sandhurst, we'd finish ironing at about midnight mm. in prep, for, and you'd, either, well, you'd just sleep on top of your your yeah. your bed, but your bed block would be on the floor, yeah. and just sleeping in sort of a coffin position and waking up in exactly the same position and cracking on for the, the next day. day. Crack on. Uh, what is your favourite breakfast? Um, porridge. Porridge. Do you know what? That's the most popular answer. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Is it just plain porridge? You have fruit in there. Um, I quite like porridge with a sprinkling of sugar on it and then milk. Okay. So not water, but milk for your porridge. I could make the porridge with water, but okay. I just have a, a little bit of milk just to give it a bit of bit more. Very nice. A bit, yeah. a bit of creaminess. Yes. Uh, what is your go-to if you had to do it? Your go-to karaoke song. Um, Elvis Presley. Okay, any particular track? Teddy Bear. Teddy Bear. And obviously, you know that follow up question is coming here now. Are you going to give us a little rendition now? You um, don't have to, but. No. No. <laughs> but how does the Teddy Bear one go, though? I just want to be your Teddy Bear. <laughs> I fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. Right, favourite TV programme or film? Um, Only Fools and Horses. Ah, oh, classic. Yeah, yeah. favourite scene then from Only Fools and Horses? Is it the Rodney uh, Del Boy falling through the bar? No, no, no. The fa my favourite one is the chandelier. Chandelier. I knew yeah. that was the second one. Yeah. yeah. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? We, uh, we hold an event at the uh, at the Bath Guild Hall every year yeah. uh, in January. And they have two or two or three chandeliers, that each one, I believe, worth three, uh, two million pounds. Wow. Um, they are in incredible. Um, and I was quite concerned when we were in there, but they're actually on pulleys. Um, oh, so right. they can literally wind them down now yeah. so they're not quite just held in place, which yeah. is quite thankful for me. Uh, two questions to go then, Richard. Ooh. If you came back in your next life as an animal, which one would it be and why? Dog. Dog. At least it's not a cat. Yeah. Oh, no more cats. A yeah. dog. Why a dog? Um, I don't know. Why not? Why not? A dog's a great answer. A dog is a great answer. And your last question, Mr. Richard, where is your happy place? He 
He's thinking about it. Where has he gone to? Oh, God. Um, Where is wa- your happy place? Walking. Walking amongst the mountains. Oh, amazing. Any particular mountains? Well, I've been fortunate enough to do um, Machu Picchu. Okay. Where is that? Um, Peru. Peru. And I've also climbed Kilimanjaro. Amazing. They are massive mountains. I had the pleasure of climbing um, the English one. What's that called? Pen- ben Nevis? Uh, no, that's a Scottish one, is it? Uh, Pennyfan? Pennyfan. Um, no, that's Wales. Wales. Uh, Snowden? Uh, no, that's that's the other one in Wales. Scarfield Park. Scarfield Park. There we go. I climbed that with my daughter. We managed to get to the top with Izzy. And uh, we were very fortunate in that we actually had a clear day. Yeah. And we've got some of the most amazing photos. The weirdest thing was when we got close to the top, it actually came off on my phone saying, welcome to the Isle of Man. <laughs> <laughs> and I still don't well, know why. It's the furthest walk you've done as well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's the highest I've been. And it was quite a weird moment to think we are the highest thing in England at the yeah. moment. It's so, amazing. Uh, but yeah, it was a great walk. Really I've got to go back walk. and do um, Kilimanjaro. Because yeah. when I did it, we when we summited, it was snow and you couldn't see. Yeah. But I want to go back on a clear day, or perhaps one day and do that. That would be amazing. Take me with you. That's all I'll say. I'd love to come. Uh, thank you so much for coming on A Story to Tell today, thank Richard. You. Hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, loved it. Thank and, you. And uh, we'll see you again very soon. Thank see you very much. Bye.